Welcome to Am I Famous Yet? Memoir of a Working Class Rockstar, where I explore the trials and tribulations of being a full-time freelance professional musician in this crazy business we call show. My name is Ivan Funkboy Bodley, and I'll be your host, endeavoring to entertain you with my tales from the road, because sometimes you have to laugh to keep from crying. Am I Famous Yet? is available as a podcast wherever you get fine podcasts, a YouTube series, and even as an actual book in hardcover, softcover, and Kindle editions on Amazon. Links for all of these, including my social media, can be found at my website, www.funkboy.net, F-U-N-K-B-O-Y.net. If you like what you're hearing, please rate and review it, as these things really do help other people find the show. So grab your bass, tune up, and let's hit the road. Hey, it's Ivan. Welcome to Playing for a Living, Notes from the Road During the Week That Just Was. Last Monday, I played in the house band at the Bitter End Jam Session again. I guess it went well enough because I don't remember much about it. In my defense, I'm speaking about this approximately 10 days after the fact. I can barely remember what I did yesterday, much less 10 days ago. It's my fault for not trying to capture my memory sooner. I've been a little busy, as you'll soon hear next week. Let's just agree that the jam session was a wonderful night of musical collaboration with many disparate people sitting in with the band. I always leave that jam session lately feeling that I've played well for the evening, or as good as I can given my abilities such as they are. I also feel like, since I play in that band so infrequently, they haven't yet heard and grown tired of all my limited number of parlor tricks. I notice that I repeat a finite number of jokes in my day-to-day storytelling, for instance. My musical vocabulary is similarly finite. Don't get me wrong, I have some good jokes, it's just a limited number of them. I also taught two bass lessons last week, and again, with just a few days and several gigs in between, I don't remember the substance of the lessons, just that they went fine. One of my students is beginning to discover jazz standard chord changes and seems delighted with them. It's a lot of fun for me to guide him through this process and watch him have his first encounter with songs that I also first encountered as a music student so many years ago. I was so young once, so innocent. Additionally, I did two podcast appearances last week. The first was a YouTube live format with an old pal, drummer Steve Longo, whom I haven't seen in years. It was fun to reconnect and discuss our separate paths through our respective musical universes. The other podcast I did was a really insightful, in-depth interview about my book. A cat named Greg Potters, who hosts an album review format podcast, took a detour into print media for the afternoon and asked me very specific questions about aspects of my writing and experiences. It was a great conversation. It's out now if you want to check it out. On Friday, I went for number one of three brain-scraping COVID tests I needed for the following Monday. I had a gig that required a negative test within 72 hours and an international flight that required a negative test within 48 hours. I'll talk more about both of those gigs next week. Later Friday night, I played at the iconic Great Notch Inn on Route 46 West in Little Falls, New Jersey. If you've ever driven out that way, you've definitely seen the place on the side of the highway. It's one of the last remaining true roadhouse music bars and venues around the world. It's a small wooden structure from probably the 1930s, all lit up in neon, that has clearly become a biker bar in modern times, or at least biker adjacent. It's also obvious that it's been there so long that they had to build Route 46, the highway, with a curve in it to circumnavigate the place. 
I can even envision an old prospector-looking character sitting on the front porch with a loaded double-barreled 12-gauge shotgun in his lap greeting the government surveyors for the new highway when they came out to explain that they planned to bulldoze his house in the name of progress. Upon realizing the citizen was armed, they very likely decided for their own safety to put a bend in the road right there and to leave it undisturbed. It remains there stubbornly to this day. I have completely fabricated this entire scenario, by the way. I know nothing of the actual history of the place. It just kind of gives off that vibe when you see it now. As expected, it's always a great fun night to play there. The rebel spirit is strong in that joint. Though I have worked there at the Notch many times, last Friday I played for the first time with a new band for me called Real Rock Drive, fronted by my pal Carmen Cosentino. I've been standing next to Carmen on and off for about the last six years that he's been the guitar player with the Shirelles. Before that, he was with Chubby Checker for a long time. His own band, Real Rock Drive, has a playlist that you might be able to imagine from the band name. Classic rock and roll, covers of songs by the Jay Giles Band, Joe Cocker, Traffic, Lee Michaels, Lloyd Price, Tommy James and the Shondells, The Rascals, etc., I know a lot of those songs already, but as is true with any first occurrence playing with a new band, there are always going to be songs in their repertoire that I haven't yet learned. This was no exception. I had to transcribe and write a bunch of charts for the gig. It took hours. This type of preparation work allows you to be able to go on stage with a band full of people you've never met with no rehearsal and cohesively play a three-hour show, and that's just what we did. It went well. Invariably, in these virginal meetings, one of the band members whom I've just met will come up to me after the show wondering how I just pulled off that magic trick. It's no trick, my friend. It's just plain elbow grease. I have to do it all the time. The hope is that the time and effort I spent will get me called back for a second engagement, not just because I enjoy the affirmation of my work and a potential new business association, The main reason is very much because all of the prep hours I have to put into a first-time gig make the hourly rate of pay of that effort abysmal. The chance for a decent return on investment comes from the second and third gigs. Even if they pay the same as the first, the hours needed to prepare for the second gig are greatly diminished since I already have the charts written. Hence, the overall hourly rate for the series of engagements starts to at least approach the federal minimum wage. Suffice to say, we had a fun time rocking the roadhouse. That Saturday night, I led a wedding gig up in Mattapoisett, Massachusetts, just shy of Cape Cod, about four hours' drive from New York City with no traffic. Recall that I have mentioned previously, there's always traffic. I elected to drive up and back the same day. I had some business to attend to on Sunday, daylight hours that would have been eaten up had I decided to stay over up there and travel back on Sunday. I made this decision even before Hurricane Henri was forecast to make landfall that very Sunday morning, somewhere between Connecticut and Massachusetts. If I had had any doubts about my decision, they were cast aside by the impending storm. I opted for a bone-dry journey, getting me home by 3.30 a.m. rather than trying to fight a tropical storm in a Hyundai. I made the right call. The gig itself involved some logistical frustrations. As usual, I had spent hours putting together a full set list for the evening, justifying the various lists of typical songs played at weddings, the singer's actual practical repertoire and preferred keys, and a lengthy client request list. Many emails were exchanged getting this all together, as you can imagine. 
After I got it all set, I was informed Friday that I was being given an additional singer because his scheduled gig on Martha's Vineyard got canceled. See aforementioned Hurricane for the reasoning there. Then Saturday morning, day of show, I'm additionally informed that one of the other singers is sick and unable to make the gig. Furthermore, they have transferred a replacement in her place who is also on the canceled Vineyard gig. Fine. The much agonized set list is all but out the window now. I told the singers that I was going to start playing the intro to whatever the next song was on the list. I said that I don't care who sang it. Somebody should just step up, work it out amongst yourselves. That strategy worked for everything but maybe one song. After the intro to that tune went towards its 16th bar, one of the singers realized that nobody else had it and finally pulled up the lyrics on his phone. No one in the audience was the wiser, I don't think. There are only two other things that I remember about that gig. One was that the caterer didn't feed the band at the appointed hour listed on our gig sheet. They were supposed to have meals for us an hour before the gig. That moment passed without acknowledgement. About a half hour before the downbeat, I saw the caterer on the phone trying to order us a pizza. Never mind that they're preparing a mountain of food for the party and couldn't figure out how to shave off a few plates to feed the band. And never mind that I personally don't eat pizza, guaranteeing me that I wasn't going to get anything to eat. The salient point here was that there was no way a pizza was going to magically show up before it was time for us to play. They screwed up. And they knew it. In compensation, they offered us a small plate of leftover mini cheeseburger hors d'oeuvres. After the band had two bites each, I said, are you full? Good. Let's play. The caterer seemed to think that we could eat on our one break in about two hours' time, and that would somehow be acceptable. I find it interesting how many hoops party planners notoriously want a band to jump through, yet feel no shame or remorse when they fail to uphold their side of the bargain. Very late in that same evening, there was a food truck that showed up for the party guests, as occasionally happens at these soirees. When we finally did catch a break about three hours into the job, one of the musicians came up to me excitedly holding a paper basket of food. Hey, he said, they're serving lobster roll. We're not guests here, I reminded him. Suddenly, he started stuttering some apology about how he didn't mean to and he didn't realize and he didn't know. He knew. He just forgot. But since the caterer had screwed us on dinner, and since some of the other band members had similarly lined up for the food truck, and primarily since the party planner had not yet yelled at me about it, I was prepared to let it go. I would never let that musician know I let it go, of course. It was important to leave him worried about it so that he might think twice next time. He even went so far as to apologize to me about it again at the end of the evening because he was an older, experienced cat and definitely knew better. The last memorable thing about that night involved a little schadenfreude. This gig had a young and enthusiastic saxophone player on it. His big parlor trick was to take his horn with a wireless microphone out onto the dance floor and play his solo right to the new couple. While a certain amount of audience participation is commendable on these sorts of gigs, it must be used judiciously and with the concurrent ability to read the energy in the room. In the current environment, for instance, it might be questionable behavior to aim a tenor saxophone, also known as a COVID bazooka, right into the face of the blushing bride. Did I mention that this cat was possibly inexperienced? He never missed an opportunity to run off stage and perform this bit of show business. To my confusion, often when I would turn towards his usual position on deck to cue a sax solo, he would be gone. It took me a while to realize that he was out in the crowd somewhere. As the conductor of the show, this was a little frustrating. 
Not knowing if possibly he took a bathroom break or something, at one point, I cued the trumpet player to take a solo where the sax player was missing in action. What? He asked, as if he's never been asked by a band leader to play such an unusual request. Solo, I yelled. Rather than let me know that his horn section mate was out in the crowd and fully intending to play the solo, instead, he also launched into a solo, rendering Runaround Sue into a Dixieland tune. Great work, fellows. Also, way to listen to each other. The stage we were on was a platform about two feet high with no access stairs. It was a bit of a hop getting on or off of it. Somebody found a milk crate to use as a makeshift step, but that looked pretty treacherous as well. As I was already annoyed with the sax player, his grandstanding, lack of communication or availability for direction, he then executed the following maneuver. He came running back to the stage after his triumphant super spreader masterpiece opus. Upon reaching the edge of the stage, he leapt athletically into the air, aiming to land gracefully two-footed on deck. Like Simone Biles, anticipating a perfect 10 score at the completion of her vault routine. Except his foot caught the edge of the stage. He went down face first like a ton of bricks. He managed to protect his horn from the impact so that he could continue with the show, which is all I really cared about. If it had been an older player, I might have worried about physical injury or equipment damage, but an older player would know better than to try to pull off something like that. Basically, I just got to enjoy the cat's inexperience actively biting him in the ass for my amusement. It was instant karma. Well played, young blood. Well played. This is the Funk Boy signing off. Thank you.